three, two. Welcome to the Ephesiology Podcast, a podcast dedicated to the study of the early Christian movement and its implications for the church today. Today, though we are missing Matt Till, I think he's still lost in the suburban sprawl of Chicago, Illinois. We're joined uh, by Michael, our resident ephesiologist. I'm Andrew Johnson, associate pastor at Neartown Church in Houston, Texas, and we are welcoming back to the program for his second time, hopefully second time among many, uh, Brad Watson is with us. Brad is uh, an equipping leader at Soma Culver City in Los Angeles, where he develops and teaches leaders to form communities that love God and serve the city. He is the author of multiple books, including Sent Together, How the Gospel Sends Leaders to Start Missional Communities. That was actually a book that we utilized here uh, in our forming of loop groups and our small groups here at Neartown Church. So I'm always thankful to Brad for that. And uh, he holds a degree from theology uh, from Western Seminary. Those are some of the, the highlights. Brad, welcome back to the program. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for having me. Okay, so Brad, since uh, the last time that we talked, when was that? Was that, that March? No, it, I think it was it was it April or May, and it was right. Oh, that it was May, I, May, yeah. It was May because it literally, as we were having the podcast, or like moments later, or no, it was moments before the podcast. They had extended the stay-at-home orders. That's yeah. right. And you were trying to figure out how to deal with this new reality. Um, mm-hmm. So one of the reasons I wanted to have you back on is just to just to see how are you doing, and how yeah. how are you doing as a as a as a man, as a husband, as a father? Like how are you doing with all the COVID mm. in LA? Yeah, that's a good yeah. So I think that was yeah that was a week two as well, right before George Floyd's death, uh, and then our city had many many like. Um, more people on the streets in Los Angeles than any other city. Uh, I think since then we had a large earthquake. Uh, we've had massive fires. Uh, we were, uh, we've had heat waves that we've never had before. Um, but also uh, during that time, my, my family has had a, a really sweet time as well. So summer was really, uh, all things considered, was pretty good. We went to Oregon. We had a lot of fun in the outdoors where we used to live for nine years. Um, my uh, second daughter learned how to read, learned how to ride a bicycle, learned how to swim, learned how to rollerblade. She just like had this explosion wow. of growth. Big, big um, summer. Yeah. My oldest daughter uh, became a believer in Jesus. Mm-hmm. Um, Woo! And yeah, a big one. Really great. Really big. Um, and, uh, and then, yeah, I think it's been challenging just as uh, things have continued to roll on. Um, I think just the pastoral part of me, the leadership part of me, I think it's hard for anybody right now who's a leader. Um, any one of these events would be a real challenge uh, to navigate pastorally. But then you add the inability to actually be together in our city. Um, so it's even harder to I don't know, help, help frame some of the, the conversations and the, the processing that people are happening, having uh, with whatever it might be. But particularly, I think, with race um, in our city has, has been a challenge. Mm. So, so yeah. how would you, I'm not saying, how have you successfully done it? As <laughs> if like every attempt that you att- took on was gold, but how have you guys attempted to foster that conversation uh, on race, where your people are either um, challenged in a good way, mm-hmm. or comforted if they are, you know, of the black and brown persuasion and are kind of feeling attacked and feeling under the thumb, and what if it's me next? Like, how have you really fostered yeah. that conversation in your community? Yeah, that's a that's a great. <laughs> how have we succeeded and failed is good. Um, yeah, it's really interesting because w- we are actually having a, my wife and I are having a good conversation with a couple last night who who have experienced. Um, he's a he's a Korean American. Um, his family immigrated here when he was a kid, and and he's really struggled through everything um, over the last six months in LA, mostly from 
uh, the, the putting of people into boxes that happens. It's like, um, you know, they're, they're, now we're saying there's just white and non-white people. And so one of the things that I've found really fascinating is in our church, which is probably above average diverse for America, but below average diverse for Los Angeles. Um, and each person just deals with it very differently. So some of our good friends, people of color, they struggled a lot more with Ahmaud Arbery's death than they did with George Floyd's death. Uh, he was the runner who uh, was killed by three uh, citizens in Georgia. Um, and, and I think that, yeah, so we, we've struggled. We try to lead people into like doing thoughts and prayers. Trying, we try to reclaim uh, on the initial wave of emotions of it actually is good for us to think about uh, all of these things, to, to, to really use our minds. Uh, and it's also really good for us to pray. Prayer is not a, a, bo a bottom dwelling activity, but a, a high, high calling for the people of God, which was, you know, I think that that made people angry and made people hopeful too. So, uh, so I don't know, we, we try to lead people into confession, we try to lead people into prayer for a movement of God in, in our city in particular, um, just because so many of the, any, any solution that doesn't include uh, a huge heap of, of forgiveness, uh, a huge amount of uh, grace for one another is is not going to be a great solution for, for our city, I believe. Um, and so trying to lead people in that while we live in a cultural climate where that sort of nuance is not super successful. Um, mm. Yeah, I don't know if that makes sense at all, but that's what we've been trying to do on that topic. Yeah. That makes sense to me. Uh, something that pops into my <laughs> mind. Have you felt um, in your context, again, this is, this is us asking you, you a pastor mm -hmm. in LA, you're not answering for Rhode Island or Idaho. Do you feel those topics on race are a distraction from the mm -hmm. gospel, are a distraction from our movement, our focus on mission, or is it part and parcel to your call there? That's a really good question. Um, yeah, I don't, <clears throat> I think that the, the discipleship that Christians and all people are receiving in Los Angeles um, into race, the race conversation is a distraction from the gospel. So, and, and what I mean by that is the like, um, the, the cancel hunting that we do, um, the, the, the district, like, I think one of the biggest distractions around like black lives matter, the, the movement, the organization, uh, in our city has been the disregard for huge people groups that have also been marginalized in our city, uh, Latinos, uh, and Asians really specifically. Um, mm. and so I think it is like kind of divisive and distracting because, um, their lives don't feel like they matter also. Uh, and they're, they're also big, uh, experience. They have a lot of experience of being marginalized in our, in our city. Um, and, and so I, I think that that part is distracting. Um, even I would say anti-racism as a term, like I want to be an anti-racist as an identity is distracting because I think we've been given a much better identity in Christ, like mm -hmm. to be reconcilers, to be peacemakers. There, there could be a positive calling we give everyone, um, which is, I think, kind of grounded in the gospel. And, you know, like the second option of your question I think is part and parcel to the mission that God's given us, like to be, uh, to be peacemakers, to be people that help others reconcile with one another and with God. Uh, and that I don't, I don't know if there can be like a movement or revival in our city that doesn't result in racial healing. Um, I don't know if that would be an actual movement in Los Angeles um, of the gospel, if it doesn't produce that kind of, uh, reconciliation. So that's my, that's my answer. <laughs> yeah. That, I love that answer. I mean, that's, it's so rich. Um, and it, uh, raises a number of uh, questions of, of course, in our minds in terms of how, how do you enact something like that? 
and what's the reception of something like that? Because, you know, I, I mean, we have a, a real sense around the country that uh, this is such a divisive issue. Um, and unfortunately, it, I mean, it should not be an issue, actually, to be honest, that would divide us. Mm-hmm. Uh, and particularly as Christians, um, and, mm-hmm. and you know, from your study of Ephesians, that uh, this was a, a, almost preeminent in what Christ did. Mm-hmm. Uh, this mystery of the gospel that Paul was proclaiming was that Jesus was a savior, not just of the Jews, but of, the, of all ethnicities. Mm-hmm. And so there's this beautiful uh, new identity as the household of God. Mm-hmm. Um, but in a racially charged society like we are now, how, how is that communicated? Or how can you communicate that in a way that um, isn't seen as putting off mm-hmm. the issues or brushing mm-hmm. them aside and overly spiritualizing uh, on the other side? Right. Yeah. I think that there's for... I think for, I think, yeah, a lot of the division, it's, it, it feels like to me, it comes from uh, people who, who do experience just to adopt the culture's term white privilege, you know, and experience being, being, you know, experientially higher citizens uh, than others. And, and there's so much history that goes into, I mean, the, yeah, our Afri- African-American and Latino brothers and sisters have been fighting for equality for a long time uh, while we as white people have built equity, you know, in homes and mm. businesses. And, and, and there's just a big, a big general, you know, disparity. And, and I, and I think, so one part of the question is like, how do we do that? I think that it is an element of the call of Jesus to follow him, which is to, you know, pick up our cross and to follow him. And I think for, for us, uh, who have privilege, regardless of whatever box you check on race, I think that there is a how can uh, how can I uh, humble myself and listen to others, have empathy with others, care, listen, use whatever resource I have to see uh, to and to serve um, others. I think on the other side, there there has to be um, a lot of ability to forgive and to, and to give. Uh, and extend repentance to one another. And so I think that we, we really struggle with that on a micro level too, like as a pastor, um, many, many reconciliation conversations with people where mm-hmm. one person is just like, no, I will not admit that I'm wrong. To admit that I was wrong in any part is you know, a destruction of my identity. Uh, and then you have other people's like, I will not move forward at all with you unless you say some magical words of, of forgiveness. And I think that 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 happens on a micro level in communities and churches all over the world. And I think that that, that happens on a macro level. So I think part of it is for us to just learn how to do basic reconciliation on small things. Like I thought you were going to bring salad and you brought cake instead, you know, like, let's talk, like if we could have that conversation well within the gospel, then we might be able to build to, to some of the bigger pieces. Like, uh, you know, you really offended me when you, touched my hair uh, because you think it's different and, and back and forth. So I think that would be, that'd mm-hmm. be one really small path. Maybe that's spiritualizing it, but yeah. yeah I that, don't I, think so. No, <laughs> I don't think you've over spiritualized that at all. Only because like what you just broke down is the essence of grace. It is the essence of being uh, both forgiving mm-hmm. and seeking forgiveness as well as, I mean, we always say giving somebody the benefit of a doubt, you know, I'm going to give them the benefit of a doubt, but you know, frankly, when you're frustrated or you've been wronged, sometimes mm-hmm. you just don't want to give them the benefit of a doubt yeah. and, um, and shoot, I mean, you know, confession time, you know, I know that, that Michael and I have been in conversations where, um, we're coming at this from opposite sides maybe not even entirely this topic, but uh, uh, other topics. But that graciousness is being able to see our identity in Christ is first Mm -hmm. and foremost. And everything Mm -hmm. after that is secondary. 
Mm-hmm. And because we hold that common identity, then we can give each other that benefit of a doubt. We can be forgiving. Mm-hmm. We can bring up some things of saying, I see this in you and it's not great. Or when we receive the, I see this in you, we don't freak out. Mm-hmm. Like that's, that seems really, really vital. And Absolutely. Uh, sadly, kind of what necessary for relationship. Absolutely. Yeah. And I I think that we often believe that the most powerful thing that we can do, and I mean, this was on display in our presidential debate that I didn't watch. Uh, I watched a 30 second clip and I thought that was enough. Uh, I would say I was out too. (laughs) The strength is we, um, we never say we made a mistake, but actually so much strength and so much power comes from confession and authenticity. Um, Reach. And, and I think that that's even like um, the, the, the real pathway even to, to a lot of mission, regardless of if the world's on fire, literally, and the, the country's breaking apart. Yeah. Uh, confession authenticity, authenticity is, is one of the greatest, not just like tools in our toolbox, but really like weapons against uh, evil and divisiveness and destruction and um, and that is something that that I I did write a a public uh, confession of my own racist practices as a as a pastor uh, from my from my eleven years doing this, uh, which I thought would you know get me canceled by people, but actually brought a lot of um, a lot of yeah really powerful stuff from that. So. Mm-hmm. Um, so a couple of days ago, a study was released by Barna. I don't know if you saw it yet, but um, I wonder how much of this affects some of the things that we see going on in our society today. Mm. Andrew, I think you saw it as we interacted just briefly on it. But one of the things that came out of it, and I'll, I'll read just here uh, a brief section of this, that uh, says that... Um, that millennials also stood out as the generation that is most likely to acknowledge that they are committed to getting even with those who wrong them. In fact, 28% percentage points more likely than baby boomers to hold a vengeful point of view. How much of that fuels what we see perhaps going on in our society today? Mm. Yeah, that's that's a really. And I, you know what I just, and I, I, I know, I've seen that before. That's would, impressive. This yeah. was well, this just came out a couple of days ago, um, right? And and it was, and I I think I mean I was just defending Barna to somebody. I was trying to validate a different study that they had done to somebody. I was like, look, this isn't like Joe Schmo. Like they do their work. They're really good at what they do. And so you know when you see their studies, you at least need to say. There's some validity to this. When I hear a number like that, one of the first things that I hear about that, if millennials believe that way, I mean, I know I sit at the very, very, very top of the millennial. So I get to claim whatever generation I think is most right. And so that's how I get to roll. And when I hear that, my defense as a millennial, I just want to say, look, We've seen it exhibited first. So we may believe that, but I don't think that came out of a vacuum. Um, I think that we have kind of watched, I don't know, a presidential debate kind of exhibiting exactly what I'm saying is that there are other people that who are just angry and want to get even and think that hateful fighting is the way to go. And that sort of mindset is with everything that we just talked about antithetical to the gospel. It, it completely goes against everything that we, we need to understand and live out in forgiveness. And so I think forgiveness has been hard for every generation. It just takes on a different color or a different mm. flavor. Yeah. I do. I do think that a lot of millennial stories though are wrapped around that observation of, of vengeance and wrong. So, you know, millennials are, the 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 highest percentage of generation ever to grow up in dual parent like broken parent households where their parents got a divorce and they they observed a divorce among their parents and and the 
and the brokenness of that and the vengefulness towards one another to get to get even, you know, as that, that study said, and the desire to get even, I think that that, I think that plays into a lot of, of a generation that's, that's really been brought up in a lot of pain and brokenness and, and chaos, unlike any other generation. So I'm, I'm never a, a strong uh, millennial defender, but I do think that that, you know, even the scriptures describe like the sins of our fathers and our grandfathers, like kind of repeat themselves and grow. And I'm not like a big, like, you know, my great grandfather was, you know, a liar. That's why I'm a liar. It's not my fault. But I do think that there's, (laughs) there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of multiplying effects when you think about the brokenness that, that this generation I think has, has been raised in. And then, the brokenness that they've experienced even in adulthood too. So I think, yeah, I think that completely plays out. Even in my church, the people who are most um, upset about things, uh, whether it's climate or politics uh, or COVID or racial strife in our country are actually some of the most privileged white people who are really young. It's just like an outlet for unresolved anger and pain from before. And and that's my super, I mean, I don't say that in my counseling sessions, but I would say that that's, that's a big piece of, of what it is. Well, observationally too, what you just said, it seems that we are continuing to quote unquote, take sides with whatever we're doing. And as those sides continue to grow farther apart, they become more polemic we just become more entrenched in our sides. And so what the gospel calls us to is not middle ground. It's not to, to marry the two sides and find the happy medium, but the gospel calls us to a third option. It, it calls us to something better, whole, and complete in Jesus. And so um, – just trying to be less one side or more the other side is never going to get us where we need to go. We're going to just have to put down our arms. <laughs> Stop mm-hmm. trying to get even. Stop trying to pick a, a harsher side, but find something different, which means everybody's going to be pissed at us. One side of the polls and the other side of the polls is going to find something that they're frustrated with Christians with. And I don't know. I don't think this is the day and age that we need to continue to push um well you you know it reminds me of uh the the 16th century at reformation and so you have luther and and then eventually you know the swiss reformation and you have the emergence of the anabaptists and these were these were guys and gals the anabaptists who were really trying to do what andrew you just described uh, they were this third option and they were ridiculed and tortured and killed for their beliefs by both sides. And um, that's a hard place for people to be um, is trying to be in that space where uh, Christ assures us um, that uh, division will be caused because of holding on to him um, in those ways. I, you know, I'm, We've brought this up a couple of times. It's been mentioned here in our conversation a couple of times, this notion of forgiveness. Um, I've always thought that for us to um, look for forgiveness or to give forgiveness, uh, but particularly to expect um, to be forgiven, almost assumes that the other party actually knows that something has been done in the wrong. And so often we're, we're just not aware of how we might have wronged someone um, in order to ask for forgiveness or for that other person to actually forgive uh, the, me for doing something that I'm not even aware of that I wronged them in. Does that make sense? Um, it does. And so, I, and I think, yeah. well, I think that it's necessary. So I am a big, um, I prescribe to the Peacemaker book uh, by Ken Sandy. Um, And I have, you know, things in my past that we absolutely were wronged. My wife and I in a church situation, (laughs) again, uh, church hurt sometimes is some of the worst hurt. And 
um, we felt wronged and it took us a very long and painful time to realize that those who hurt us were probably never going to come to us and say, we realize how deeply we've wronged you. Forgive us. Mm. But Ken Sandy has those four promises of forgiveness and those four promises of forgiveness come to us um, regardless of if a person comes and asks us for forgiveness or not. We are the ones who forgive and we bring that to Christ and we allow him to kind of heal that space. And we don't lean on the other person to say, yes, I have wronged you. I see how wrong I have been, Uh, but that we bring it to Christ. And um, I'm going to very quickly go and grab those four promises of forgiveness from the interwebs while you two chat kindly on this topic of forgiveness. So I don't leave uh, a dangling end of sentence here. Hold on. (laughs) I think I found them because I Googled it. Okay, good. What are they? I think I will not dwell on this incident. I will not bring up this incident. I will not talk to others about this incident. And I'll not let this incident stand between us or hinder our relationship. I I find the four four of those, honestly, I I just got emotional just you reading them. uh, Kind Mm -hmm. of in the pit of my stomach, just because I think about how much I know that I have wronged other people. And I think about how, and those times bring me shame. And I, for example, I I met this gal. We were friends when we were like kids and, you know, in like second, third grade and before that. And then again, we chatted in high school and she was like, wow, you know, you didn't turn out half bad because when we were kids, you were so arrogant and you were such a brat. And (laughs) You know, you always realize that you don't know how you come across to everybody and you don't know. Mm. And that's a silly, you know, innocent kind of thing. But I know I have wronged people and it kills me to know that there are people that might have something against me. And at the same time, I might have something against others, but I, I bring it to Christ. I choose to not hold it against them. I choose to not bring it up to other people. I choose to not allow it to be something that separates reconciliation between us. Um, I, I'm going to let it go. And I mean, that seems healthy to me, even if the other person, like you said, Michael, even if the other person never comes and says, will you please forgive me? Hmm. Yeah. I, I, I think about this topic in physiological terms, right? Um Thinking of Ephesians 4.32, Paul writes, be kind to one another, tenderhearted. And the English, unfortunately, translates it forgiving one another as God in Christ has forgiven you. In the Greek, there is charizomai, which at, at its root is grace. There's a grace that needs to be extended to other people that I can give, even though um, I might feel like I've been wronged and deserve Mm -hmm. Uh, that somebody to come to me and repent for the wrong that they've done to me, even though they might not be aware of it. I think this idea of being gracious to one another uh, is so much more powerful um, Mm -hmm. uh, because it means that in spite of what that person knows or doesn't know, in spite of what the person did or didn't do, my responsibility, because this is what Christ did to me, did for me, um, is to be gracious to that person. And that's, it's difficult. I think it's probably more challenging than to simply say, well, I forgive you, um, Mm -hmm. which I've always thought to be somewhat presumptuous if the person doesn't know that they did something wrong to me. (laughs) But uh, this idea of being gracious isn't demanding from the other person. It's demanding of me uh, Mm -hmm. to be like Christ. And, mm-hmm. uh, and, and, and that's challenging uh, for us to do and perhaps a little bit more difficult, but it's, it's the Christ-like thing, it seems to me, to do. Oh, man. And I love that, Brad. You said it earlier, and you're like, this is such a great tool 
in our toolbox that we have. I mean, I would even go so much further as this is a declaration of the validity of the gospel inside of us. This mm-hmm. is our greatest, one of the greatest ways that we can proclaim that we are changed when we mm-hmm. don't act vengeful, when we don't resort to kind of the normal quote unquote human thing to do mm-hmm. in this situation. But we move yeah. forward as people of peace, people of grace. Yeah. Yeah. That's really good. Yeah. Okay. Oh, all right. So here's the challenge guys. And you guys have got to work this out because you're closer to the millennials than I am. Okay. In, in I thought you were about to talk said, about grace, the church, but no. You're- <laughs> I, I so thought he was going to bring it up. He was like, keyword grace. I got my in. No, 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 not, we might not even get to that topic and I, I'd like to get to it, but I love what, what we're on here because I think it's important. But insert what we just spoke about in terms of forgiveness, uh, graciousness, these four points, insert that into our context today in the United States with everything that we see going on. How does it apply? Yeah, that's really good. I think that um, one of the things alongside the forgiveness track is I think we've also kind of lost our way with describing sin well, or even talking about it, period. And, and I think that what we see a lot of vengefulness against is systems and structures that are totally broken, but we've lost sight of the fact that it's, there's this huge chorus of humanity that is sinful and breaking and abusing one another and building these, these systems, you know, like, Um, like a whole bunch of people building a house with broken tape measures and hammers, you know, like that's what we've done. And then the thing itself is really broken. And, and I do think that like forgiveness has lost its way in these, these kind of issues, even just like with millennials, because uh, we don't view it that way. We just view it as like, in my experience, it's like this person you know, wronged me. And then that wrong person is like, no, we just miscommunicated. Or I've even kind of found like, maybe these are four things that go along with the four, four things of forgiveness. But it's, you know, it it can't be a sin, if I didn't know it was a sin at the time. So I didn't, I didn't know it was a sin. So I, I can't repent, because at the time, I didn't know it was a sin. Uh, It's not a sin if I don't remember it. It's like, oh, I can't remember. So, you know, what else can I say, man? Like, sorry, you're hurt. Uh, uh, it can't, it can't be a sin if there's a reason for why I did that. So it's like, uh, no, you don't understand. I have emotional baggage. I have drama, I have pain. So like, that's why I, you know, hit your car with my bat. So it's like, so that's not a sin because there's, we've unearthed, you know, I'm an Enneagram four and that's what I do or, or whatever it might be. Oh man. <laughs> there's my Enneagram shot. Um, and then I think too, like then the, then the last one that I feel like uh, just kind of keeps people from like acknowledging this is a sin or this isn't a sin is if um, they just, you know, genuinely believe like this is how normal people behave. And so, um, yeah, you know, I did like cuss you out, but like, that's normal in our world. Uh, Mm. and I think that all of that, like that, and I've seen this played out, I think even pastors, you know, elders, Christian leaders around me, um, kind of play sin through that. So the only way there can be, you, there can be a sin is if you remember it, there were no other motives involved. You knew it was wrong at the time. And it's not what other people do. And that's the only way it can be a sin that you, and so we've made sin, I think, um, such a small target to hit Mm. that then everything else is just uh, that other political party, that other, you know, race, you know, and, and so then there's no opportunity for forgiveness. So I do think we need to teach a bigger picture of the breaking of Shalom that's happened um, and the pervasiveness and the pollution that is sin. Um, Go into that. Go into that a little bit, because I think this topic of shalom is a really healthy way to move forward and answer Michael's question. Um, how, what do you mean by the breaking of shalom is something we need to talk more about? Yeah, I'm just stealing uh, Cornelius's, uh, Cornelius Plantinga, uh, 
his book, The Brevity of Sin. I don't know if you guys have read that book. I think I got the the right brother there. Um, but yeah, he just describes um, shalom as the the mutual thriving of everything that that was created to be. You know, mishpat and tzedakah. You know, justice and righteousness, compassion and and the way uh, of life. And I think that. Uh, we just don't realize that sin pollutes the world, like pollutes the heart. It disintegrates the human soul. Uh, it's pervasive in that it touches touches every part of, of human society. And so it, there it is. There's the book. I did get it right. Uh, not, not the way, the way it's, it's supposed to be. That's the a book. Brevity. A, a yeah. breviary. I don't sin. know how to say that word. So I'm glad you I did. just guessed, yeah. I think. So this is the Plantinga book that you're talking about. Yeah. And it's gold. Yeah. And I think that that's the, um, I think if we had an understanding within the church, and even if disciples had that kind of understanding of, of, of sin, we'd be much more readily able to say, oh man, we need, we need something that can swallow up this big black hole mm. of sin and death, you know, and the only way for us to even move forward together will be if we both look at that black hole getting absorbed by the same person. Like that's the only way for us to, to move forward and, and to not just see, Oh, in that pit is my sin, you know, like the great uh, pilgrims progress, but to see, Oh, in that pit is all the sin um, is their sin, his sin, her sin. Um, mm. yeah. Cause only when you see the, I mean, this is, kind of what Jesus was pointing out those who know the the depth the height the width the extent of their sin and then just like you're talking about the extent of all the world's sin do we even come to fully understand how great Jesus is mm-hmm. how complete of a savior how uh, how wonderful the peace he has wrought and brought us to mm-hmm. that is that is that is true shalom that is yeah. true wholeness and if and then kind of conversely, what you were talking about, when sin is small, Jesus doesn't have to be all that big. Yeah. And um, there's a line, I think they stole it, um, but the band, Me Without You, they have a line in one of their songs, and he just kind of comments quietly. He says, oh, I'm going to need a lot more grace than I thought I did. Mm. And that always catches me just because... Like we think I only need a Jesus that's yay big. And then we come to grips with ourself, our world, the sin of all time. And we're like, we need somebody who is bigger than all of this, mm-hmm. who can actually mm-hmm. bring me shalom. Um, something that popped into my head, Brad, and I don't know if you've caught yourself saying it or slipping it. I do try to help my kids see as I'm telling them, they are definitely in trouble for what they did. Uh, They always, well, I didn't mean to. Mm -hmm. And, and I didn't, you know, and it's like, okay, guys, it's not about intent. It is about impact. You didn't mean to hit your sister in the face, (laughs) but now she's bleeding Mm -hmm. and you were responsible and so you do need to kind of own up to the fact that it was something that had a really awful effect. And I think one of the things that's so difficult, Michael, what you're bringing up in this conversation is that when we talk about um, the evils that are happening in the world, everybody it seems that we're talking to becomes acrobats that are so nimble mm-hmm. that you can't pin them down on anything. Oh, that's not mm-hmm. me. Oh, that's not me. Oh, you, you still haven't, you haven't got me because I didn't intend to do any of this right. instead of, and now I want to point Michael to kind of your book and that social justice section that you called people to the very first step. What happened to listening to people? Mm. What, what happening, what happened to hearing about how they honestly feel and lamenting with them? actually saying, I am so sorry that this wrong happened to you. Mm -hmm. I'm not, again, it's what, do I have to find my own sin and understand that I am completely complicit 
to validate what you've gone through? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Or, or can we slow down and listen to brothers and sisters and in our lament commiserate with each other and find healing and shalom in Christ? Hmm. Yeah, and, and isn't that isn't that uh, a description of the body of Christ? You know, where we can come together with each other and uh, do those things in fellowship. Mm-hmm. Okay, so I am going to, uh-huh. then I will launch the question, Michael, that we didn't think we would do. Uh, since COVID has come upon us, sometimes mm-hmm. churches have found new ways to pursue community and the ability to be with each other and commiserate with each other and seek out Jesus in a new way and continue discipleship and other people have made them political events. So Brad, since you are in LA, at least one of the highly publicized people was at Grace. Is it Grace Community Church? Is that what they call themselves or Grace Community Fellowship or Grace Bible Church? Oh, there we go. Yeah. Bible straight in the title. So, um, John MacArthur has certainly made a name for himself, um, making Mm -hmm. bold statements. Uh, recently he came out and said things such as if you gather, or if you seek to gather as a church, you are believing in God. And if you are not gathering, you don't have enough faith. You don't believe in God's sovereignty. You don't insert a lot of really harmful epithets thrown at other pastors and churches. So Brad, you're in LA. Um, do you still believe in God? Uh, I, you know, I, I do. <laughs> uh, I do. And I guess here's the thing. Our church has broken the, the um, guidelines uh, for four months now. So uh, in Los Angeles County, you're not supposed to spend any time with people um, outside of your household. Yet our missional communities have met multiple times a week uh, since May uh, in people's backyards and other places. Um, and, and, you know, we just did that quietly. You know, we didn't, uh, I didn't send a press release to the LA Times or try to get on Fox News. We just decided that that you know what if a restaurant can be open so can uh so can our missional communities um and we'll we'll do we'll wear masks we'll people sit separately you know we'll we'll be good citizens but we're also going to uh break the guidelines um i i think with uh with john macarthur there's a lot of i think i think he makes a lot of great arguments about evaluating the harm you know like um in our city there's like such intense levels of isolation depression anxiety anyway um the you know believers being on their own is is really terrible i i think what he missed though is just like the opportunity to like reimagine the the power of the church um because i think in the the thought process is the church can only be the church when we're in this building listening to this preaching and singing these songs together. And it can only be the church uh, in air conditioning together, which where he lives is incredibly hot. Like several times he said, it's more dangerous for people if we meet outside. And it's true. It's I went hiking out there a few weeks ago. It's 110 degrees like all the time, uh, which I think is just your fault for living there. That's my take on it. <laughs> Uh, don't live somewhere where it's 110 degrees all the time. Uh, so but, you want us to move out there and drive your property taxes and everything up further. Is that what you're saying? Cause I don't think we can all fit there in <laughs> where I live. <laughs> no, you can. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That's uh, that's true because you guys live in Houston, Chicago, Chicago gets humid, both real humid places, huh? Uh, yeah, anyway, not where I am, not where you are. Um, but no, I think it's, I think it's hard when we is, it's hard for collaboration and kingdom working together when we make those kinds of declarations, you know, publicly, like, um, which is, it's been a good thing for me to evaluate because as a teacher, 
as a speaker at times, as a writer, I have said like, hey, if you're not doing this, then you're not the church, which I have like even a podcast I hosted, like I did get some some letters back, emails back of like, hey, I'm a pastor in a church and some people in my church listen to your podcast and they've been telling me that we're not really making disciples here. That kind of stinks. Uh, and so, yeah, I, I would say that, that that's real painful to do. So we should all be careful about that. Yeah, yeah. Well, one of the issues, it sounds like, that uh, has been raised is this notion that the government is somehow uh, discriminating against uh, churches and uh, that there's a perception that the government is actually prohibiting uh, worship. Um, Not to camp on what's going on at Grace. I I do think it's Grace Community Church. Um, But but how are other churches in Los Angeles County addressing that? Because this has not been, I mean, the press has really gone and and given MacArthur and uh, a couple other churches a voice in this, but they certainly should. I wouldn't think that they're representative of all the churches in Los Angeles. So how are other churches navigating uh, the, these issues? Yeah, well, I think what's yeah. So churches can meet publicly outside now. Um, one of the challenges is you have to have your own property or land, like it can't be public land, like you can't do it at a park or a beach um, legally, um, because those are like public spaces that have no gathering ordinances at the moment. Uh, But you could like meet in your church parking lot. So many churches uh, in our city who have buildings, uh, which is not that many, but still those churches have been meeting for quite a while with tents and sitting in their parking lot and having worship. I think that um, I do not Black feel like asphalts. Yeah, exactly. That seems nice and cool. It's really yeah. hot. Uh, and then I think several churches have done like what we've done and said kind of, I know this is, we've kind of just, so we met at the beach a few weeks ago for the first time in six months. We had a gathering of all of every community all at once. Um, and we did it at the beach and we didn't put up signs or anything like that, but we just met there. Uh, ironically, we had visitors, um, and a lot of churches have done that as well. Kind of dared, like, all right, we'll see if the lifeguard comes and kicks us out. Because when you're sitting on the beach in LA, you look around and there's tons of huge family gatherings <laughs> happening everywhere. Um, I think that's. I think most pastors have kind of said, "This is what we need to do to keep our people safe. This is what we need to do to keep our." people discipled well. And I do think that it's some mixture of, of corporate gathering of whatever size. And I think true, truthfully, like most churches in LA are less than 75 people. So they're very, we're talking about very small gatherings of people anyway. Um, but yeah, that's, that's how many have embraced it. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. saved a lot of money on rent. Most of them. Yeah. So. <laughs> Well, I mean, that's one of the issues, isn't it? It comes down to finances oftentimes. Um, these larger churches, it would seem to me, I mean, I don't know what the budget is for these churches, but there's certainly a, 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 a probably a disproportionate amount of resources that are going to sustaining those buildings and the necessity for people to actually be in them. Uh, to be uh, inspired to give um, Mm -hmm. resources, but. Yeah, and I I would say that I don't think that we're experiencing persecution. Um, Like, I think all of that is kind of of silly, but I do think that it it would be naive to, to be a pastor in California and not have the thought of like, this state and this government's culture is not wanting the church to have, they don't, they're unconcerned if the church can exist or not. They're unconcerned if Christians can continue to, to practice their faith. And I think that's, that's very true. Like uh, churches being able to meet and the good that the church provides society, our mayor, that's like way low on the mayor's list. You know, our society, it is very clear through the pandemic. It's like our society our governor, our mayor really wants the marijuana shops to open 
and then the liquor shops to open and the restaurants and the movie theaters and the college football. And like, that's what we want to get open uh, way before we think about churches. So I do think that there is a legitimate, like we live in a place where the church is not highly valued. So yeah. Uh, when those are true before. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And there's no revenue. I'm sure it'd be different if we were paying taxes. Yeah. Yeah. Which might happen before too long. Yeah, totally. Yeah. And so you'll have a tax-laden reason to continue to meet. Mm -hmm. And then you could lobby. And then you could have things happen. Yeah. I think this is, it's kind of weird, Brad, for you to be where you are in California with that environment that you have. And me being in Texas with all I don't want to say the almost exact opposite environment if you're going to paint colors one state is blue and one state is red yes that is exact opposite but where you see an unhealthy antagonism against the church here it's an unhealthy alliance at times And so um, some of our churches were, again, kind of along the same lines of some of MacArthur's claims, we will meet, you can't stop us, consequences be damned. Um, You know, our people are going to be fine. Um, We're doing everything just right. Uh, The virus isn't that bad. You can't tell us not to meet were religious space. And so we had the exact opposite, but still unhealthy fights over here. And uh, man, it is just so hard to understand how to lead your people. Because my guess is, Brad, even in your community, you've got people on both poles. Uh, Some people who have, yeah, we absolutely should meet and uh, how soon and where. And then the other side of nope, I, I think it's still dangerous and it's not safe and we're not going to come. And, and even further, you're foolish to think that you guys should start gathering because you're going to get people sick. And it's now, uh, and, you know, I don't know about you listeners, but you know, our people are on both poles. And as pastors, God has called us to lead people on both poles to disciple them, to point them to Jesus and to love them well. Michael, what is your experience Amen. where you are? <laughs> Amen. Uh, you know, it, it, um, yeah, I mean, Michigan's where we are in West Michigan uh, is probably not all that dissimilar from what you're you're uh, saying about Houston. Um, uh, yeah, I, I mean, it's a, it, it, it is a pastoral issue, um, but I think it's also helping us to see that um, it's not always a pastoral response that we need to hear. You know what I mean? We've talked about this with Alan. Um, uh, yes, we need to deal with the pastoral issue, the concerns on both sides, but we also need to, to give vision, to create vision, uh, to engage our community, to, to not think about the, the bad I mean, if we if we just focus on all these negative things that are going on without uh, really focusing on God's mission, then uh, we can lose sight of what's important. And um, I'm I'm will be like a ping pong ball being bat batted between whatever the new flavor of the day is, the new critical issue. And um, like we asked earlier, we we, we essentially get batted between distractions, never focused on the main thing. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, they're interesting times, aren't they? They are. Yeah. Okay, so uh, <laughs> so the only thing that California needs to get hit with is a tsunami. What else do we want to put on the? Uh, this is going to happen in twenty twenty list. list. <laughs> tsunami would be very shocking because our fault lines are all inland. Uh, so that would be very bizarre. Uh, but. <laughs> Everything else has been very bizarre. Yeah, uh, I would say if we had started the year saying, "Yeah, these things are going to happen this year," 
it would have been like, mm-hmm. no, that's just too, that's too weird. Too much. Yeah. That's too but much. I do think we have a very, a very challenging road ahead with, uh, with the election. So I, I do think that, um, yeah, the election and afterwards, I think will be, will be very challenging for apparently 45% of the country. So no matter what. Uh, okay. So then yeah. I guess let's close, let's close with this, Brad, how do you foresee? No, no, no. I'm not, I'm, I'm actually not trying to ask the political question. Oh. How do you think, what's the way forward? What, what is a, what is a pastoral response or a wise response to continue to engage on God's mission that he's called us to seeking his glory in all things, uniting all believers in him? What is the, what is the way forward in light of the political climate we are about to experience? Hmm. About to experience or are experiencing? (laughs) Are you anticipating some uh, dramatic change coming? Yeah, yeah. You know, I would, (laughs) that could be some dramatic uh, issues. I think, um, yeah, I think that's a really great question. I think for the church, we do have this incredible opportunity to tell the story that both political parties are trying to tell that's just missing huge, huge bits. So mm-hmm. I think, um, you have liberal people trying to tell this story about a world where uh, everybody has what they need and everybody is satisfied and everybody's accepted and everybody's loved. And that's a good story. It's just, it's just missing, you know, a huge chunk. And I think conservatives are trying to tell a story where uh, people have freedom, people are able, able to be productive, uh, people feel safe, um, all of those things. And I think that both those stories are shadows of, of the kingdom story. Um, and I think we as a church have a real great opportunity to tell the story of, um, of the king who does bring a kingdom where everybody does have every spiritual blessing, where everybody is accepted and loved because of who Jesus is, where everyone then gets to feel free and secure and productive in that kingdom. Um, and I, and I do think that that's, that's a lot of what we have to do, but, um, even some of the other stuff that we talked about, we, we kind of need to lead because our churches are mixed, probably maybe not super, uh, because our country's getting really polarized geographically, but I, our, our church is mixed politically. Um, and we need to have just real authentic conversations of confession where we put our hope in chariots and horses. So that's my mm. that's my quick answer on that. <laughs> I think that's a fantastic quick answer. Uh, for those who want to hear an elaborated answer from Michael and I, please go back to podcasts uh, where we kind of hashed out some ideas. But I think that is a perfect place for us to end this podcast as a reminder. Um, after the presidential debate, I think I posted, I just, I literally posted a picture of the words Psalm 146. And I said, Psalm 146, that's the post, that's the tweet. And in it, it reminds us that um, we're not going to put our hope in a prince, that it is God who establishes, it is Mm. God who has raised up, it is God who sustains, it is God who feeds. He is the one in charge and he should get the glory. Mm. And uh, Brad, thank you so much for reminding us of that, that truer story. Um, that everything else is always a shadow. It is not the thing. Christ is the thing. So um, any, uh, any final words that you want to tell our people, um, you know, this is, this is your spot. You have the mic. Well, yeah, we're good. (laughs) (laughs) Brad, For what you're doing there and, and uh, how, the light of Christ is shining through your community in Los Angeles. So thanks. Thanks for joining, joining us again. Absolutely. It is a great, it's an absolute pleasure. Uh, Where can our people find you connect with you, stay up on what God is doing in and through you? Uh, On uh, Twitter, uh, Brad a Watson, Uh, Instagram, same thing. Uh, and I also, I write a lot at saturatetheworld.com. So, yeah. 
That's awesome. Well, Brad, thank you so much for being here with Michael and I. Thank you for suffering through uh, me getting phone calls in the middle of podcasts. I actually (laughs) turned everything off so that that wouldn't happen. And somehow it happened again. So for that weird blip in the middle, I apologize to our (laughs) listeners as they're trying to figure out what Michael and Brad are stopping for. Um, that was that was that but uh but we are so thankful that you were here with us today um and now i just want to invite everybody uh the fun is not just for brad michael and i but we invite you to be a part of the growing ephesiology global community whether you are an academic a pastor a church planter a leader a mentor or everybody else a spirit-filled christ follower with the desire for god's mission in the world you know have a seat at the table for you. There are three easy ways you can be a part of the physiology community. One, subscribe to this physiology podcast. Why don't you also leave a five-star rating and review? More people will hear it and see it the more you talk about it. Two, head over to physiology.com and sign up for free exclusive content delivered from us into your email. Three, join the ongoing conversation on our Facebook page by searching Ephesiology. And you know what? I'm going to invite you to take a part of a fourth thing. Go and check out the Ephesiology Masterclasses and see if there is something that God wants you to pursue in engaging His world on a missiological level. And if that sentence is too hard for you to fully understand, just go online to the Ephesiology Masterclasses website and uh, learn more about it. So for myself, Michael, and Brad, thanks for doing theology and community with us today on the Ephesiology Podcast.